welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. This week, my guest is Phil Lamar of the show Samurai Jack. Uh, this is a this is an interesting program where it feels like only a few people know about it, but everybody who knows about this show loves this show. This is a beautiful, gorgeous series about a time-traveling samurai who goes to a post-apocalyptic future and has to fight the evil Aku. And that sounds like a lot, but what's striking about this show is the way that so much of it is done in silence. So much of it is done with visuals, with colors, with beautiful designs. And I think that what's fascinating about this is the main character, Samurai Jack, whose voice actor, Phil Lamar, is with us today, is someone who doesn't say a lot, but you get so much about who he is from just the spare snippets of dialogue that he has. And I I really wanted to bring Phil in to talk to him about how do you create a character when you have that little? Phil, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so the the reason we're kind of talking today is you're back as Samurai Jack. Mm-hmm. Samurai Jack is like this is like one of those those great roles that you know is is you're always going to be proud to be associated with. You're always right. going to have right there. But he's not a guy who talks a lot. He's he's not a guy who's particularly loquacious. I'm wondering no. when you get a script like this, like what does it look like? Like what what are what does it look in terms of like looking for lines or whatever? Um, the scripts are short. <laughs> the storyboards are long. Yeah. The storyboards are extensive. Mm. Well, at least they, they used to be. Uh, now they don't print them out anymore. To watch them on a screen. Um, although this season there's an uptick in uh, dialogue. Right. Well, I don't know if it kind of fits dialogue if you're speaking to yourself. <laughs> Monologue. Right, exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, I mean, although that was never really what it was about for me, I've always been, uh, proud to be a part of this show and excited. Even, you know, I mean, there, there are some episodes the character is in that I'm not in. Right. Just because he didn't speak. <laughs> I, I was looking at that at I, on IMDb, that the number of episodes produced and the number of episodes I'm credited in are not the same. <laughs> so... You have this guy who obviously doesn't doesn't talk a lot. And how much do you draw from looking at, like, the visuals of the world or from the physicality of what uh, Jendi Tarkovsky has created? Well, not that much because, unfortunately, most of the visuals aren't done until a right. year after we mm-hmm. record the, um, uh, the, the voices. Um, but even before we started, Gendi had this piece of animation that he'd created to show the network mm. what it was like. And once you see that, you get the feel, you get the tone. Um, and so I just basically put myself in his hands. Mm. You know, he's got such a clear vision. And, but at the same time, he's open to, you know, the interpretation of the actors, the artists, the musicians, everybody. Um, so every so you always feel like you're a part of the collaboration, mm. but at the same time you never lost. You know that he knows what he wants, right? You know, so that's it's it's always a joy, right? Right. He's he's really celebrated as this uh, you know action director as someone of design mm. and and visuals and things like that. But what is he like as a director of actors, like as as a voice actor director? Um, it's it's that sweet spot. It's somebody who wants what you give but knows what they want. Mm. You know, because there, there are some people like, um, maybe that, no, that's not it. <laughs> you know, which just, you're out at sea. Right. Um, and then there are other people who go too far in the other direction. So, no, say it like this. It's like, well, why didn't you just get in here and do it? Mm. You know. Um, Gendy is is the, the ideal director. He loves what you're doing, mm-hmm. but he also... If you don't have, you know, something there, he's like, well, try it like this. Mm. You know, he he can always bring something new out of you without making you feel like the thing you did before was wrong. Right. You know. Right. Great, great. Which not everybody can do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So 
the conceit of this new season for people who haven't seen is that it's it's 50 years later. Mm-hmm. The character has not aged. Uh, in the time that it's been off since I think 2004 was the last time it aired before. Four or five. Yeah, remember. somewhere in there. Uh, in that time, you probably have aged. I don't know. Maybe, maybe yes. you have. <laughs> uh, what, how, had, how did you sort of approach that question of somebody who's 50 years older but also not older, like creating, stepping back into the role and finding – that element because he sounds he sounds wearier but also not if that makes sense well because i mean there are vocal things that we associate with age Mm -hmm. um depth texture things that make you know weakness physical weakness Mm. those are the things we associate with age like you know if this is what i sounded like when i was you know young this is what i sound like mature and this is what I sound like older. That's not the case here. His age is solely mental. Mm. You know, it's what's that? What's that line from uh, uh, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's not the years; it's the mileage. Yeah, and that's literally what it is with him. Mm. It's not nothing physically has changed that much, but everything mentally has changed. Mm. So his voice is the same. But obviously what he's saying and how he feels about it are completely different. Right. And, uh, and that's, that's the, the trick mm. is, mm. Uh, you know, it's the same guy, but he's not the same inside. Right. Mm. One of my favorite things to talk with actors about is physicality, is building a role, using body. Uh, but when you're doing a voice performance, you don't have all those tools available no. just on screen. How do you build a character – with just the voice and how do you differentiate, you know, this character from some of the other favorites that you've played? Well, the truth is, as a voice actor, you, the character is never just the voice, not Mm -hmm. an animation. Um, You share that with the writer and the animators. Um, You're all working together to create the character. You know, um, my part is getting the emotion in there, you know, um, making sure I'm communicating what Gendy and Brian and Derek, you know, the writers are trying to, you know, put in there. Um, and I think the, the animators are doing the same thing as well. It's like, okay. And hopefully the voice helps communicate to them. It's like, okay, what level of sadness do we need to draw? Okay, well, we can read the storyboard. We can, you know, talk to the guys. But what are we hearing? You know, so... Everybody feeds into everybody else. Um, And I'm trying to think in terms of other characters. I don't know. This this show is pretty unique. It's Mm -hmm. not like any other show I've worked on. Um, Just in that its approach to storytelling is just so in and of itself. There's there's no other show that tells stories this way, Mm -hmm. you know. Well, where do you start when you're building uh, a voice character? Like, what is what is step one for you? Uh, obviously, in some cases, you've done, like, on Star Wars Rebels, you've done some work as Bail Organa, who's, like, mm-hmm. a character we know from Star Wars movies. But a lot of the time, it's just, like, it's just you in a booth. Maybe you have some drawings. But, like, what's that process like? Like, what's step one and how to kind of walk me through how that works? Um, well, it depends. I mean, obviously, for Bail Organa, step one was listening to recordings of Jimmy Smith's. Mm-hmm. Um, for this... Um, it's, for me, it's mostly description. Like, tell me about the character, you know, and a lot of times they'll have a drawing, but the physical, um, representation of a character doesn't necessarily determine the voice, you know, because if you've got a character who's tall and lean, well, he could sound like this or he could sound like this, you know, the, the, the physicality isn't necessarily going to dictate not as much as. The description. Is he tall, lean, and mean? Mm-hmm. Hey, what's your problem, man? Yeah. You know, or is he supposed to uh, be insecure? You know, then, uh, you know, then that tall and lean becomes, you know, something you, you want to get a, a waviness in there, whatever it is. Right. Um, so to me, it's, it starts with that. What description? What is the character like? Um, Although the funny thing is a lot of times when you're starting a show, they don't know where a character is going to go. Right. Um, when we started Futurama, um, my character Hermes was just the office accountant. Right. Um, 
I don't think it was until the third or maybe fourth episode till they decided to make him Jamaican. And we went back and re-recorded those episodes. But, and then from that forward, that began to inform the character in completely new ways. Right. So, and consequently, I mean, obviously the voice changed accent, but he also changed attitude, you know, and it's a, it's a back and forth, you know, between what the voice actor is doing and what you find that works because that first voice we were doing was fine. Yeah. You know, whatever. I don't even remember what it was. But it wasn't clicking. It wasn't really working. Not the way that the Jamaican voice, oh, now this works. The, you know, you do that voice and the writers start to get ideas. Right. You know, and, you know, that way they don't write the character out. Yeah. <laughs> one interesting thing about, one interesting thing about uh, voice acting on TV is you do have that element of, like, famously Homer Simpson's voice. Mm-hmm. It's very different from it was in the earliest days of right. The Simpsons. Right. What's something about, like, characters you've played over many years, whether it's Hermes or, or Jack, like, that you feel like, uh, beyond just that accent, but you feel like has changed in the way that you approach how you voice them? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. Well, I find that, at least for me, I don't really have a voice down mm. until I've seen the finished show. Until I've seen the voice plus the drawing plus the music until it's actually there. And I'm like, oh, okay. Before that, it's always like, I'm sorry, can you guys play me the recording of the audition again? Okay, what was it? All right. It's just so hard to get a grasp on it. And I think it's because, like I was talking about before, the voice is not the whole character. And until you see the whole character, it's much harder to grasp. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. No, of course, I can do it at any time. Yeah. You know, but before that, it's like, uh, which one was this? Was he Haitian? <laughs> you know. Um, are you someone who, when you're in the booth, are you like very physical and acting it out as well? Not generally. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you're always afraid you're going to bump the mic and waste a take. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember on Justice League, that was always one of the things. Because that was early in my career when I started that show. And we had to do a lot of action. And I always sort of thought that, you know, once I get this voice acting thing down, I'm going to be able to do all these efforts and stuff without actually having to move my body. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. Mm. Uh, unless you move while you're doing that that <laughs> punch sound, it doesn't feel right. And I've tried it. I've tried it. It's like, I'm not going to move. I'm just going to do a punch sound. <laughs> and you can't, it doesn't feel like you've got it right. Right. It's like, well, wait, is that what I sound like when I'm moving my upper body? Or is that what I sound like when I'm moving my lower body? And I, I imagine there are people who have it down to a science. Mm. It's like, no, this is a kick sound. <clears throat> and this is a punch sound. Ugh. You know, <laughs> but I haven't got there yet. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you also do like in, both in, in this show and in others you've done, you do like these tiny little parts. Like will, somebody will step in and, mm-hmm. you know, have like one or two lines. What's that process like? How's that, how does that differ uh, from, you know, building a character over time? Really, the only thing different about it is you're more concerned with separation, mm-hmm. making sure that that voice doesn't sound like your main character. Because mm. um, generally speaking, it doesn't matter right. that much. Um, yeah, there's like uh, in the episode of Samurai Jack that just aired, when Aku wakes up, there's the voice of his announcer announcing guests coming in. That was me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we just said, you know, Basically, you've got it thrown down there like, oh, and you're also the announcer. It's like, oh, okay, did you did you want something like this? Like, mm. yeah, that's good. <laughs> and then, yeah, you knock it out, lay it down, and forget about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is this, uh, you know, you certainly voice actors are sort of praised for their versatility if they can go all over the place or do different tones, different accents, things like that. Is there some, is there an area that you feel like you could be better at or maybe you just can't get to that you wish you could? Still can't get, do a South African accent. Hmm. Um, it's just so hard. Um, uh, well, it's weird because it's hard to think about just doing accents in a vacuum. Right. Although it's funny because a lot of people will come and say, I like to do voicing. I do accents. Like, so? <laughs> what does that mean? No, no one's like putting out a cast call like, we need someone to do accents. <laughs> they want you to play a character. Right. Like, can you play a character with that accent? The accent is secondary. Right. But I do a really good accent. Okay, thanks. <laughs> what, what is the trick to that sort of thing of finding an accent but also finding the character within that accent? Because you can get so hung up on, like, the technical work of the accent that you lose the character. 
Um, you got to do the character first. Mm -hmm. um, from a versatility standpoint that you were talking about, you need to know the accents. You need to know um, a lot of different regional dialects. You need to know, you know, internationally, you know, and domestically, just so you have them and then can apply them to a character when it comes up. Right. But ultimately, the character is first because... If you're just doing an Australian accent and all you're doing is, you know, concentrating on how that accent sounds, like, you're not communicating anything. Right. That character is flat and nobody's going to want to listen to that, you know, audition ever again. Mm. Mm. Um, a lot of times they may ask for an accent, but if, like, for instance, my friend D. Bradley Baker mm. uh, was auditioning for American Dad mm. and they wanted... Uh, one of the pets in the house had a French, oh, I guess it's goldfish, had a French accent. Right. He doesn't do French mm. as well as he does German. Mm. So he's like, I'm just going to do it as German. And his German-accented character resonated so much better than everybody else who did French mm. that he got the job and has been doing American Dad for, you know, a decade and a half now, right. however long. Right, right. Uh, it, it seems like the voice actor community is pretty... Like, you all know each other really well. Like, do you keep running into the same people at auditions? And oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not as small as it used to be. Mm. Um, just because over the last several decades, it has literally expanded exponentially. Uh, you went from, you know, having three networks and their Saturday morning shows to, you know, adding the syndicated thing in the 90s. Uh, which there was another explosion. It's funny because you can find people who are in voiceover now. And it's like, wait, when did you come in? And it's like layers of sediment. Yeah. There were people who came in, you know, in the 60s, like mm -hmm. Frank Welker. Then there were people who came in at the explosion in the 90s. You know, because the truth was, until cable or syndication blew up in the 90s with, you know, uh, that X-Men cartoon sure, and all sure. of that, yeah. um, they didn't need anybody else. Right. Frank Welker, Dawes Butler, Mel Blanc, and, and those nine guys could do it all. Yeah. You know, and June Foray did all the women. <laughs> um, but then things started to expand, you know. Um, and then once you got cable, where there were whole channels full of cartoons, um, then you needed more and more voice actors. And now you've got to the point where people can make animation on their laptops and it's expanding. You know, plus the anime communities and all. There are a lot of different kinds of voice performance, more, many more than there used to be. So, yeah, I don't think we know everybody anymore, especially if I look at my Twitter feeds. Like, there's a lot of people calling themselves voice actors. I've never, okay, whatever. Um, and it's still TV, American TV animation has still got a little bit of that small town feel. Right. You know, uh, majority of the directors, you know, who direct now started out as casting people at Hanna-Barbera 20 years ago. They're still the heart of it, but not the whole game anymore. Right, right. When you were first breaking in, when you were first starting to do voice acting, like, what was that like? Like, what was your process of entering this field? Um, well, I kind of got lucky. I was doing mostly on-camera acting, and we started doing claymation pieces on Mad TV. Mm. And so I was able to get a little, uh, you know, mic time doing that. And that, I think, really helped, because by the time I was done with Mad TV and actively, you know, available to pursue voice acting, I had some experience, you know, because it is different, you know, the same way that stage acting is different from film acting. The, the the job at its core is the same. Take an imaginary circumstance, make it real for an audience. Mm. But doing that for a live audience on stage is slightly different from doing that to a camera, which is slightly different than doing that on a microphone using just your voice. So there, there are differences. Um, but I had enough experience and got, like I said, lucky. The women who cast Mad TV also wound up casting Futurama. Mm. And knew that I do, did characters. And I was able to sort of do a lateral move that way from sketch comedy to voice acting. Um, 
because there's a similarity in terms of like, okay, you need to be able to do multiple characters right? because they, they get uh, three for the price of one. Mm. Um, like, I mean, just on a dollar basis, like what you get paid to do three voices is the same as one. Yeah. So they're going to hire the guy who can do three, <laughs> you know, more than they're going to hire somebody who's like, oh, I've just got this voice. Like, <laughs> thank you for coming in. Um, but you're costing me, you know, two-thirds of my budget. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, and like I said, I got lucky. My first handful of shows were Futurama, um, Justice League, Weekenders, Static Shock came mm. before Justice League, mm. you know, and all like amazing creators, yeah. you know, people to, to work with. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of... Um you know, in the, in the live action TV world, there's certainly like that relationship between creator and actor. And I'm wondering, does that also exist in the animated world? Do you, can you like go and talk to the writers and like ask them questions about your character? A little bit because the, the creation aspect tends to be a little more centralized. You know, um, the guy who runs the show in an animation thing is usually the guy who created the show, right? you know, and draws the characters or whatever. Um, I would say that that, um, relationship is even more pronounced in um, voiceover and animation than in on-camera. Because in on-camera, you'll come in, do a guest star appearance on a show, and they'll say, oh, my God, it was so much fun having you. I wish we could have you on every week. In voiceover, they can. <laughs> oh, my God, you were so great. Come back next week and do this other guy. Yeah. Mm. You know, which you can't do mm. in, uh, in on-camera. Um, but, yeah, you'll see... A lot of creators, like I think Tom Kenny has been in every show Gendy has ever worked on. Right. You know, in some capacity. And, you know, people like working with people they know, trust, and respect the talent of. Right. And in uh, voiceover, you can keep calling those people back. Mm. You know, and if you could, why wouldn't you? Mm. You know? Mm. It's like, I know him. I know he can do the job. Even if I don't know what I'm doing— I know in three takes, Maurice LaMarche will give me something amazing. Mm. So bring him in. Yeah. You know? Mm. The sort of like shows for kids and shows for adults, mm. uh, the acting style is different, like live action acting. Is that the same for voice acting? Like do you have a different – do you have to like take a different tone if you're doing a show pitched at kids? Um, it depends on the, the forum and the producers. Mm. Um, in general, children's animation has historically suffered from – Let's call it a quality deficit. Yeah. Um, and I learned this years ago that part of that is because they don't care about the ratings. Most American TV animation, Saturday morning stuff, the cartoons were loss leaders for the toys. Oh, yeah. Hmm. You know, so, you know, they they weren't like, oh, we got a bad review in Variety. <laughs> you know, no, no one cared. It's like, yeah. What did Mattel say? They said they're shipping off the shelves like nobody's business. Great. Do another 52. It's like, well, what's the storyline? I said do another 52. You know, that's a certain segment of it. But that doesn't mean that people can't do good shows and tell good stories, you know. And I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of people who care about the quality of their work, you know, regardless of whether it's for adults or for children. I mean, because let's be honest. There's a lot of crappy stuff out there for adults as well. Yeah. You know. Um but yeah, the the children's thing is is a unique area because they will just like order 65 episodes of a show. Yeah. Like well do, do you, you do you have any idea what the story is going to be? Nope. <laughs> we just we need 65 cuz that's the time frame that it takes for us to air those episodes is how long will it take for those kids to age out of this show? Mm. Yeah. You know, it's this weird sort of, you know, factory mentality Yeah, that was actually in place long before everything else in entertainment got corporatized. <laughs> um, how long does it take you to record an episode of something? Uh, generally, a TV animation workday is four hours. Mm. Um, obviously, on a show like Jack, where there is significantly less dialogue per 22 minutes— um, the days are usually shorter than the full four hours. Um, 
And it depends. It depends. Like some cartoons are super, super talky. Um, and a lot of shows these days record the actors individually, right. one by one. They say it saves time. I don't believe that because mm. I've been in rooms where you have eight voice actors and we get it done in four hours. It's like when I come in alone, I have an hour. Mm. It's like, oh, that's you've just you know booked eight hours of studio time to do the same thing you could have done in four. Right. And it, although I have to say, if you're sitting from the outside, it feels like a bunch of voice actors are wasting time because mm. everybody's kibitzing and making each other laugh. Like, ah, this is a... But inevitably, you get it done ahead of time with brilliant stuff. And in my experience, the shows that care the most about the writing still tend to do group records mm. because especially if it's comedy-driven or relationship stuff, they want to hear how it plays, you know? It's like, I wrote these words, how are, you know, because having a group read them is the closest thing you can come to hearing the finished animation, which isn't going to come for a year. Mm. And by then, it's too late to find out your lines don't work, right. you know? So, uh, yeah, it's, I prefer the group records. One, because of the sense of community, and two, because you know what you're acting against. Mm. Like, the way you say, the way you ask me a question affects how I answer it. Yeah. You know? And when you don't have the other actors with you, you're basically just sort of acting into a vacuum. Mm. It's like, I'm going to say it this way. And then I'm going to say it this way. And then I'm going to say it this way. Hope one of them fits. Yeah. You Mm. know? Good luck with that, editors. When you're in that vacuum, when you're doing stuff just just without other actors to play off of, like, how do you... How do you approach that challenge? Well, that's a lot of the video game work, mm. you know, because there is so much, um, you know, stuff to cover. You almost always record alone. Mm. I think the one instance that that didn't happen was uh, the Metal Gear series. I remember recording with Quentin Flynn because our characters were adversaries. Um, but you basically have to create a lot of imaginary stuff in your head. Because, like, okay, we need this line four times. Okay. And you have to come up with something that makes it make sense. Right. Because you know how it is. Like, if you have just a string of words, you could just simply read the words off the page. But nobody wants to hear that. That makes for a bad game. That makes, you know, that's bad acting. You really have to invest it with something. You have to read the words off the page. Mm. You know, bring them to life. And then they want it four different ways. Like, okay... Let me imagine another three different circumstances in which I'm saying that line. Right. You know? Um, And it's hard. It's much harder than doing a scene with other people. Yeah. Um, And, you know, obviously with the video game stuff, there's a whole other level because then after you do, you know, three and a half hours of that, then you have to do a half an hour of screaming. (laughs) It's like, okay, all of that acting you just did, then your character dies. In... 800 different ways, <laughs> you know. What is the secret of a well-groomed guy? The Art of Shaving. Founded in New York in 1996, The Art of Shaving has been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. The Art of Shaving has your total routine covered, whether shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. The four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. Start by prepping skin with their signature pre-shave oil, then create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied with a handcrafted badger hairbrush. Shave, then replenish moisture with their aftershave balm. Finish off the perfect shave with one of five new fragrances. Sandalwood and Cypress, Oud Suede, Vetiver Citron, Green Lavender, and Coriander and Cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products while never having to worry about running out. Our listeners will receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code TOD. To get this offer, go online to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code, which is my name. So don't forget that, Todd, to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert. Step into one of their many retail locations near you. Remember, that's offer code Todd, T-O-D-D, two Ds in the name, at theartofshaving.com. 
you mentioned earlier, we talked earlier about playing Bail Organa. Right. Uh, and you've also talked about Justice League. When you go step in and do a character that people love or that people like have associations with from something else, whether it's a different actor or just like, I've read this, these comics, I know right. what this person sounds like. How do you find that character? Um, well, the Bail Organa obviously was a voice match. And that was simply listening to Jimmy Smith's and capturing, you know, the way that he speaks. You know, he has a very distinct tone and, to a certain degree, a way that he approaches lines, mm. you know. So you start there. But then, of course, because I've done a bunch of different uh, voice match things. There was a show called Ozzy and Drix based on a character that Chris Rock had done in a movie. Mm. And inevitably, they hire you to do a voice match and then within two, three episodes, they're asking you to do something that that character has never done before and that that actor would never do. Yeah. You know, because all of a sudden you're doing Chris Rock. Chris Rock sounds like this. And if you actually have Chris Rock doing the character, he's never going to play a sad scene. <laughs> he doesn't want to. Yeah. If it was actually Chris Rock and they wrote this sad scene, he'd go, you know what? Wouldn't it be funnier if he did this? And they all go, oh, yeah, Chris, that's great. But it being me... I have to do Chris Rock doing sad. Yeah. And they say, it doesn't sound like Chris Rock. That's because he doesn't do this. <laughs> Inevitably, you wind up finding a new land yeah. in that voice. It's a it's someplace the character goes that the original performer never took it. And it sounds different, you know? Like uh, on Bail Organa in Rebels is now Bail Organa. He's not really... Jimmy Smith's anymore, mm. you know, because they're having the character do things and I can't, there's nothing for me to listen to. There's no reference for like, well, Jimmy said a line like this. It's like, no, at this point, I'm, you know, doing the character for itself, not so much just to ape him. Right. You know. Right. How about the, the superhero work? Like when you are playing a character people love mm. or know, but like doesn't necessarily have like a definitive portrayal, you know? Well, that's that's um, harder. I've been lucky in that I didn't have a character that people loved mm. in that sense. I mean, John Stewart was B-list Silver Age yeah. when that cartoon started. Nobody really said, that's not what John Stewart sounds like. I mean, because I remember when we started the show, George Newbern came on as Superman, mm. which is wholly other territory. Yeah. Everybody. Even no one who's ever, someone who has never picked up a comic book has an idea in their head of what Superman sounds like. Mm. So George got all kinds of, like, that's not what Superman, no, that's wrong. You're doing it badly. You know, as John Stewart, I didn't really get that. I got a little more of a blank slate. And it's funny because I always think that the Marvel people were geniuses in that they sort of did that same thing. They didn't start with their big a-list. They didn't start with Captain America. Yeah. You know, well, of course, mostly because they had sold off all of their big A-list, uh, you know, heroes. They started with Iron Man. Yeah. Like, there are not a lot of people who walk around saying, I love Iron Man, Iron Man. I grew up wanting to be Iron Man. Iron Man was B-list Silver Age. Yeah. And so they had a, more of a blank slate to create. It's like, yeah, he could sound like Robert Downey Jr. Why not? Yeah. Nobody said... No, Tony Stark never sounded, Tony Stark would never have a goatee. You're ruining my childhood, you know, like they would if it were Superman yeah. or Captain America or Spider-Man, which yeah. they did. <laughs> um, and we found the same, I found the same thing with Jon Stewart. I had freedom, yeah. you know, to just talk to Bruce, look at the character design and figure out, you know, what this guy would sound like. Or he's a Marine, so he's a serious guy. Yeah. All right, I think he'd sound something like this. Mm. And, you know, the Bruce and the other writers and producers said, yeah, okay, that works. You've had many of these characters who you've returned to time and time and time again over the years for different media, different different shows. You know, like Hermes has been on The Simpsons a couple of times. <laughs> is it, can you just like slip back into those voices? Is, is Or do you have to remind yourself what that's like? Um, for... Characters like Hermes and um, and Jack, yeah, because those are characters that I've lived with for a significant amount of time and shows that I really feel invested in and a part of. Um, 
there are other characters that if somebody, you know, called up and said, oh, we're bringing this back, I'm like, oh, okay, really? Let me hit YouTube. <laughs> um, that might not be as solid. Right. Um, but I'm trying to think if there's, I don't think there's anything I couldn't do anymore. Yeah. You know, um, I think I can still get down to my static range. Mm. You know, if they want, anybody wants to bring static shock back, I'm game. <laughs> um, you had mentioned, uh, you know, that, that you, try a lot of things sometimes. Is there, can you think of a time when, this may be too granular, but can you think of a time when you tried something and they were like, yes, we're going to do that. We're going to keep doing that. Uh, you mean in terms of an audition? In terms of an audition or in terms of a role that you were sort of trying different things out for? Uh, mm, that's mm, that's an interesting question. I mean, because generally that's how it, I mean, once you find something right. that clicks you know, that's that's what you're going to stick with. I'm trying to think if there's – do you mean we found something that we thought stuck and then you said, oh, wait, what if I try this? Yeah. And you yeah. keep changing you, you, it? And it keeps evolving, yeah. Huh. Uh, not really. Mm. Um, because, again, the nature of television, it's an assembly line. Yeah. You know, and the acting department is just one stop along it. They need us to do our job so that the people on the – either side of it, the next end can get theirs done. Right. So you can't really like, you know, record a voice one session one week and then come back. Like, you know what? I was thinking, what if Ken is more of a, it's like, dude, we already sent it off to Korea. Yeah. It's done. Go back, do what you did last time. Yeah. You mm, know, mm, mm. although, um, although do, characters do change over time. Sure. Sure. What's, uh, what's been a change with some of these characters uh, that you've played for many years that you had to incorporate? Some of it is just sort of things evolve. Like I think the the Hermes voice for Futurama has changed over time. I think initially it was a little you know, less hefty sounding. Yeah. You know, and I think the accent has gotten thicker because mm. in the beginning the accent was new to everybody. And I was doing a real Jamaican accent. And they're like, mm, okay, one more f- clearer. And they kept pulling it back. Right. But then I think as their ears got used to the accent. Yeah. I could start doing it more and more, you know, heavier patois. And also I think, look, me looking at the character, I said, he's heavier. And so I would come back and the voice got a little, you know, huskier over time. Hmm. Um, so I think that sort of just natural evolution, you know, there's things that you as an actor sort of change, you know, or unconsciously. And then there are things that, you know, the, the writing can change it. You yeah, know, um, Hermes gets becomes more and more mean, right? And that can sneak into the into the performance. Yeah, you know, mm, mm. you've talked a lot about like looking at people and seeing you know they're tall and skinny or seeing they're a little bit heftier. Do you when you're like out in the world and hear people talk? Do you notice like certain qualities of voice that go with like certain body types or certain ages or things like that? Yeah, well, I've always been fascinated with sounds and how people talk and accents and, you know, what's typical, what's atypical, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, what is a black voice, Mm. you know, why, I mean, because there are things that are typical, you know, when people do an Indian voice, the pitch is generally up here. And like, why? There's got to be a whole bunch of guys in India with deep voices. Yeah. But for some reason, we don't attach that pitch, you know, why isn't there not someone doing, you know, like this? I don't know. Mm. Um, and as an actor, a lot of times your job is to help the writers with their shorthand. Right. You know, um, so, and people say, well, why are you doing that typical things? Like, so that we can get that information out quickly and move on with the story. Right. You believe me, you didn't, you wouldn't want all these cartoons to be 45 minutes long. Right. Mm. Um, so, but there's always a balance between shorthand and stereotype. Yeah. You know? Um, and that, to me, is the actor's job. Okay, well, are you just doing an accent or are you doing a character? Mm-hmm. What are you bringing to this person that you're, you know, portraying mm-hmm. that makes that grounds it, that makes it unique, that makes it real? Yeah. You know? Um, and that's, you know, sometimes you nail it. Sometimes you can... It's like, well, that one was a little more in stereotype land yeah. than I would have liked. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, and it's it's a real challenge these days because people are much more aware of it. Yeah. Than they used to be. It certainly is a, a time when so much of comedy is built on stereotypes, on like quickly defining, and even like some of them are you know non harmful. Like this guy is a snob. Like who right. cares? You know. Well, I guess. <laughs> oh, yes, right. If you do this voice, yeah, it's like what are you saying about people from Connecticut? That's racist. It's like not really a race. Yeah, not, people from Connecticut are not technically a race. <laughs> um, how do you walk that line of you know? You mentioned like trying to give the writers something to get the shorthand across quickly, but making sure you don't step into stereotype and have there been times when you felt like the role was pushing too far in that direction of stereotype it's about specificity um and i mean i'm at the point in my career now where um i feel comfortable pushing back if somebody's like well we wanted to no no just make it it's like are you sure like there was uh a cartoon i was working on and there was a anthropomorphic crow character mm. And I wanted him to sound like this. I'm like, you know, I don't think you actually want that. Mm. It's like, why not? It's like, and then I had to explain to them there is a history of crow characters being basically uh, minstrel characters. It's like, is that really what you want to be associated with? Like, oh, yeah, no. Okay. So maybe it could be like this? Yeah, okay. And and a lot of times it's just making people aware Mm. and real and letting them open up, you know, their, their ideas. Like, what do you really need, you know, for this? Well, your idea was that it was like, you know, some street guys, like there's a lot of, a lot of streets, you know, the Corbanesh guy, right? Mm. You know? And once people realize that they've stepped into that, you know, stereotype instead of the shorthand, they're like, oh yeah, no, that's, we're not trying to do shorthand for, you know, shady black guy. We're trying to do shorthand for, you know, shady street guys. Like, well, it could be any of those, right? Like, okay. And sometimes you, you know, people aren't as smart or as open. And, you know, right. I don't know. I tend not to work for those people. Hmm. Uh, this, is, this is something I'm sort of fascinated by because we're very interested in the idea of diversity within Hollywood. Right. Um, but in voice acting, theoretically, theoretically, it doesn't matter, like, what somebody looks like because they're just doing the voice. Right. Uh, you yourself are non-white. Um, have you looked at this world? Has it gotten more or less diverse over the time you've been in it? And has how has that sort of helped with the writing uh, and direction of these shows? Well, it's funny because it's definitely something that I think about and, in fact, talk about a lot. Um, as an African-American actor doing voices, it's, it's a blade that cuts both ways. Um, personally, I believe in colorblind casting. And if the playing field were level, then any person of any background should be able to play whatever character they can believably portray. Right. But the playing field is not level. Mm. Um, Their characters in animation and video games are disproportionately white guys. Yeah. So it doesn't really make sense or – well, not not that it doesn't make sense. It's unfair to just, you know – to, to play into that imbalance. Right. Granted, certainly in animation, diversity has increased. There are more characters of color and leading characters of color, because that's the other thing, is we get into characters. It's like, no, there was a black guy standing in the background. It's like, <laughs> not the same thing. Yeah. Not really the same thing. Mm. Um, it's who's in front, who has the lines, who's driving the story. Is it a boy? Is it a girl? Is it a character of color? What are, you know, do they have status? Do they not have status? Mm. You know, video games was like, no, we have a lot of black characters. Like, who are the sidekick of the white guy? Yeah. Well, yeah, but he's there. Which, you know, if we have to be honest, is an improvement over when it was just two white guys. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's mostly about people being honest and aware, mm. you know, like, know what you're doing. Realize that you've just made, a, you know, a thing that's all white guys. Like, because a lot of times they just don't notice. Mm. It's like, oh, did, oh, really? Oh, sorry. Mm. And you have to know when something is, you know, purposefully, purposefully, you know, um, non-inclusive and when it's not. Yeah. 
you know, don't like get on somebody for making a mistake the same way you would somebody for, you know, it's like, well, we made the villain, you know, this big lipped racist guy who talks like Mike Tyson. It's like, really? Yeah. I'm the both. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's a different thing than, oh, we forgot that yeah. all of our characters were white. Yeah. Um, but that said, I was going to say the, the other way it cuts is if only black actors are cast for characters that are black from a pragmatic standpoint that works better for me yeah because there are fewer black actors than white actors mm. and if we open it up to colorblind casting odds are john dimaggio would get all of my roles <laughs> Not really. but you know what i'm saying there because there are more of those guys like yeah. if it's just me and uh og banks and kevin michael richardson I got a 30% chance if I'm competing against all of the white guys too. So, I mean, in an ideal world, I would like it to be open. Yeah. Um, in a world where I have to pay my mortgage, um, I accept there is a benefit to the niche casting of it. Um, but what I would say is what we need are greater representation in the roles available. Right. Because if the roles were more diverse, then we wouldn't really have to worry about people having an imbalance of opportunity. Right. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a little slight amount of controversy around like the film Kubo and the Two Strings last year mm. where uh, all of the actors were white and the characters were uh. of Asian descent of some sort. Um, I, I guess I'm sort of wondering like do you think that you can bring something to a black character that say John DiMaggio could not? Possibly. There is a specificity – but to be perfectly honest, it's less important to have diversity in the acting representation than in the writing representation. Mm. Because generally speaking, the actors are not determining the words. Mm. And I could come in there with like, well, actually, this character reminds me a lot of my uncle who grew up in, you know, uh, Louisiana area. And he sounded like this. If the producer doesn't know that from that, he goes like, mm, nah. Just do like, you know, Gangsta Thug. Mm. Just do that. It's like, well, it's like, no, no, that's, that was great. But no, go back to what we did before. Yeah. It really doesn't matter what I bring to it. Right. If the people in the position to make the decisions about how the character is represented aren't diverse or diverse of mind. Mm. That, that's really where the change is going to come. Mm. Uh, you do a lot of live action work as well. Um, mm -hmm. What do you get from voice acting that you bring to your uh, – you know, live action performances and vice versa. Like, well, how do those inform each other? Um, actually, it's funny you say that because there was a period where I did a ton and ton of voiceover and really didn't do a lot of on camera. And then I went back and got an on camera job and I found myself focusing on the voice. Mm. I'm like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 stop, stop. That's the other, that's the other gig. Um, don't, don't just, don't just sit here and think. It's like, no, actually what you're doing with your face matters too, Phil, remember? It's like, oh, right. <laughs> I think the... The voice acting actually probably helps me with the auditioning yeah. more than the um, performance. And truthfully, that all goes back to my improv training mm. for on camera and for voiceover, the ability to make a quick choice. Mm. I don't think I'm doing any deeper acting um, in voiceover than somebody who doesn't come from on camera. Right. Um, it's really just a shift. It's it's shifting gears, you know, from stage to camera to microphone. You just change the emphasis. But really, like, making specific, unique emotional choices that help convey the story the writer has given you, that job is the same no matter what. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of your famous on-camera roles. Uh, you did work on Mad TV. Right. Uh, I, I just remember I was I was a teenager at the time, and I, I kind of glommed onto that because I didn't want uh, to be to the guy who watched that hour. hour. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, I'm sleepy! <laughs> you guys were always like kind of this scrappy underdog. What was it like being on this show that was like everybody was like, you know, they're they're taking on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. Good for them. Um. Well, I don't know. That the taking on Saturday Night Live was really more of a a marketing stance than anything yeah. else. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't going anywhere. <laughs> um, but I mean, the fact that Mad TV lasted as long as it did was pretty spectacular. Um, 
I think it could have had a greater, even greater impact if there had been a greater vision. Mm. Like at the beginning, there was sort of this idea of like, let's do Mad Magazine on TV, which is a good idea. It's like yeah. you've got, you know, that 14-year-old boy humor, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, but you also have social satire and pop culture satire. And, you know, and there is definitely a difference between what we were doing in SNL. SNL is a variety show. Yeah. You tune in to see Robert De Niro wear a wig. Mm. You know, oh, what's he going to do? You know, you tune in for the topical stuff. Yeah. You know, this is happening now. Mm. We were a sketch show. Mm. We were doing things, you know, three months ahead of time. So that joke couldn't just be funny tonight. It had to be funny, you know, forever. Like, I think our stuff tends to be more evergreen Mm. than theirs. But that topical thing is its own its own kind of comedy. Right. You know, telling that joke that is hilarious this week, mm. you know, and that's a, that's a skill unto itself. Do you, do you have a sketch from that show you remember with great fondness or particularly uh, loved? Oh God. Uh, there are a handful. There are a bunch actually. Um, there was some really good stuff. There was a, a Terminator parody mm. called uh, where basically it's Terminator meets Jesus, the greatest action story ever told. And the Terminator is sent back in time to save Jesus from being killed. Yeah. But Jesus doesn't want him to be saved because it's prophesied. And then, no, no, I'm dying for the sake of mankind. I won't let you die. You know, <laughs> and it's one of the best pieces of writing ever because it's not blasphemous in any way. Mm. It's true to the Terminator. It's true to Jesus. And it's funny as hell. Yeah. You know, like he, you know, Terminator walks into the Last Supper and does like the Terminator scan mm. and like goes, Judas will betray Jesus. <laughs> Pulls out a shotgun and blows away Judas. <laughs> and Jesus is like, what are you doing? Heals him. He gets back up and then he kills him again. Stop killing Judas! You know, which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are also in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, which I'm sure you get asked about a lot, but I, I just, I, you know, I got to know, what, what was it like making Pulp Fiction? Oh, it was great. Yeah. yeah I mean, because there are certain things, I mean, that script. Mm. Have you ever read it? I, I have, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yeah. It it reads like a novel that you can't put down. Yeah. Um, and going in to work on that, one, I was just so excited to be a part of it. And you know you're doing something that's going to be great. Mm. You don't know to what level it'll succeed because obviously, as we all know, quality and financial success in Hollywood don't necessarily go hand in hand, Michael Bay. Um, (laughs) But we knew that that was going to be good. And everybody who was there knew it, you know, from like John Travolta and Bruce Willis down to the PAs, like everybody wanted to be there. Mm. You know, I came on probably the last month of the three month shoot Mm -hmm. and everybody was still going out on Friday night. They'd like hand out flyers. This is where we're going. Everybody's going. You know, Sam and John, every, everybody went. Yeah. It was such a pleasant, pleasant set. Mm. What was it What was it like working with Quentin Tarantino before he became Quentin Tarantino? He was fantastic. I mean, like I said, I mean, that tone on set mm-hmm. starts at the top. Yeah. You know, he was completely open, treated everybody well, you know. And it's funny because, you know, he's got his persona, but that was not who he was on set as a director. Mm. He was quiet, focused, gave, you know, the actors what they needed mm. to get the shot done, you know. Um, I don't know if it's changed over time or not, but he was he was great. Mm. Mm. Uh, I want to I head in toward the end here, but I, I want to bring mm. things back to, to Jack because uh, uh, these new episodes are really terrific stuff. I'm, I'm enjoying oh, them a lot. Um, what have you, in that time when you were away from that show, what did you, like, realize about it? Or, like, did you have, like, when you came back to it, was there something new that you saw about it that maybe you hadn't seen before? Not really, because I kind of never stopped thinking about it. Mm. I always knew the show was fantastic. Right. I, I would always say this is the one show I've worked on that I can recommend to anyone. Mm. Like, well, I don't really like cartoons. doesn't matter. Like, if you don't like action then you'll enjoy the colors. Mm. If, you know, w- whether it's the music, the, the use of sound, the the simple storytelling, the, you know, 
the sort of exoticness of it, there's so much to appeal to so many different kinds of people. Mm. Um, that I always knew. Um, I think what I learned over the time that the show was off the air was that other people realized that too. Mm. And because people would keep coming up and asking me about the show. Right. Um, and it's funny, I realized that one thing that set it apart, aside from the quality of it, that there is a question implicit in the premise. Mm. You know, most shows are about these are the characters and we're exploring their lives. You know, it's 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 a point and a right. line going forward into infinity. Right. There's an end. It's mm. in the song. Mm. <laughs> He's got to get back, back to the past. Yeah. You know, and for the show to end without resolving that in some way, I think left a gap, mm. you know, that people felt. It's like, I love that show. What happens? You know, it's an unanswered question. Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's funny because there are a lot of shows that come back from the dead these days, mm. you know, but this is one that really needed to. Yeah. Like, I don't think there was, you know, a burning question of, what happens to the community college and community? <laughs> you know, we just like those characters. We want to see more of them. Yeah. But this one is like, we love this character. We love this show. We love this quality. But what happens? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what, uh, what have you learned about, especially from working on this show, about doing the, the screams, the grunts, the fighting noises, basically? Um, it's, it's interesting because the good thing about this show, even though there's so much action, mm-hmm. especially in the initial seasons, Gindy would always say, less. Yeah. Because Jack is so cool yeah. and so good, it doesn't take him that much effort. Mm. And things don't affect him that much. It's not the video game thing where it's like, you know, he's constantly getting cut and beaten and, you know, set aflame. Yeah. You know, he, it's, there's, you know, usually an attack cry mm-hmm. and then a little bit of effort mm. throughout the fights. Mm. <clears throat> you know, um, I've never had a rough time doing the action in Samurai Jack. Mm. And I think it's because it's not intended to be realistic. It's heightened. It's stylized. You know, he's not trying to make you feel the pain. You know, yeah. he wants you to just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I ask everybody uh, some of the same questions at the end, so okay. I'm going to ask these for you. Um, who is the actor you've never worked with that you've learned the most from? Probably Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. In the sense that watching the breadth of his work and the in- apparent enjoyment of mm-hmm. it, you know, that to me is something I've aspired towards. Mm-hmm. It's like he does comedy, he does drama, he produces, um, and he you know, does supporting work, leading work, and he seems to have fun doing it, you know? Yeah. And that to me is like there's a, there's a target to aim for, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the most recent piece of pop culture, movie, TV, book, song that you have – consumed and what did you think of it this is going to be ridiculous uh just finished breaking bad <laughs> and i know i'm years behind yeah um but it was so good and actually my problem with it was it was so good i couldn't binge it mm. yeah i couldn't take in more than like two or three episodes at a time yeah i had to just stop and pull back Sometimes I would ha- stop halfway through. It's like, oh my God, she's going to find out about Walt. She's going to find I got to stop. Pause. Oh, what's going to happen? I can't take it. Um, but yeah, that to me was such a great, great like work. Yeah. You know, and, and I think sort of set a tone for this, you know, peak television era that they're talking about. It's like, no, we're telling one story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not about selling infinite amounts of soap, hmm. which yeah. is what television was created for. Yeah. Um, but now it's changing. Hmm. And finally, um, you can interpret this however you want. Uh, your favorite, your thing you've seen the most, uh, something you t- c- took great profundity from, but what is the greatest uh, work of art, work of pop culture that you've ever seen and why? Seen or heard or listened to? Hamilton. Hmm. That one, I didn't have to think about that long. Um, yeah, that as a work, I mean, one, anytime 
I cry three times in a musical, mm. something's going on. Yeah. Um, but just the fact that it succeeds on so many levels, um, well, and and attempts on so many levels and succeeds on them um, in terms of energy, bringing uh, humanity to history, um, the musicality, the songs are fantastic. Mm. Um, and I saw the original Broadway cast, so I'm very curious to see it with a different cast because my feeling is that that book is cast-proof. Mm. I feel like anybody who does that piece is going to seem brilliant. Mm. But I'm, but I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it's, I mean, the social impact as well as just what a fun show it is. Mm. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time. Samurai Jack airs Saturday nights on Adult Swim. You can watch the previous seasons on Hulu. Uh, thank you, Phil, for dropping by. Oh, thanks, Dan. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's me. And I'm going to read closing credits now because that's what I do. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nisha Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. We recorded this episode at the Village Workspaces podcast studio in beautiful Santa Monica, California. Just just mere miles from the beach. I'm, I could go to the beach right now and just hang out there. Uh, our recording engineer is Che Brooks. As always, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps get the word out there. helps people find out about this show. And we'll be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment who I think is interesting. Until then, make sure you've paid your electric bill.